Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Please take your Bibles and find your way to Psalm chapter 36 this morning. It is an encouraging uh, truth to remember in a world that has lots of changes and unrest and um, uh, in some ways insecurity that we as God's people have the sure foundation of God's word. And so this morning as we look into God's word, I hope... Uh, that your heart will be just freshly encouraged to remember that God's word does not change. His character and his promises are unfailing. And uh, this is where we as, um, as a people living in a strange land, as the New Testament describes it, we are foreigners and aliens, as it were, with our eternal home in another land, a future promised land. Uh, we can find encouragement and comfort this morning uh, by having the gift of God's word. And so we find ourselves in Psalm chapter 36. If a Bible is unfamiliar to you or you're not quite sure uh, how to find Psalm, uh, you can find a pew Bible right there in one of the seatbacks uh, in front of you. And uh, you can find Psalm chapter 36 on page 465 in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible or a easy access to a Bible, it would be our pleasure to let you take uh, one of those copies of, of Scripture home with you and let that be yours. We'd love to have that be our gift to you. Psalm chapter 36. Yogi Berra, you heard some of those funny phrases that he has said? One of the funny phrases that some of you are smiling right now because you're thinking of some. Uh, one of the humorous phrases he said was, when you come to a fork in the road, you know what he says, right? Take it. We laugh at, a, at a, the humor of a phrase like that. Yet, we all are reminded in a phrase like that that life includes choices. In fact, the scriptures remind us that we all have a choice to make about the path of life that we will be on. And the Psalms remind us that there are really two main choices that we can make as people about the path that we are on. Now, Psalm chapter 1 is one of the familiar passages where it describes those two ways of life, those two paths of life for us. It describes the ungodly way and the godly way. Psalm chapter 36 is another one of those Psalms where it talks to us about the two paths that uh, we can choose, that all of us must choose from as we walk through life. The paths in Psalm 36 are described not in the idea of the godly and ungodly, but it's described as those who know God and those who do not know God. 
And then because of that relationship or lack of relationship with God, then the psalmist writes about the steadfast love of God. The attribute that David uses to emphasize those paths of life that we must choose from is the steadfast love of God. Uh, We just sang about that together in, in that hymn. Psalm 36 is all about the steadfast love of the Lord, and we know that because it's repeated numerous times here in the psalm. If you find it in verse 5, you'll find it again in verse 7. You look down there and it gets again in verse 10. So then Psalm 36 is teaching us that there is nothing better than the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, David writes about the steadfast love of God by making a contrast between the wicked and, just for our understanding, and and the godly, for the ungodly and the godly. He's writing about the steadfast love of the Lord. It's because those who do not know God don't know the steadfast love of God. But those who have a relationship with God, who know the Lord, have the blessedness of experiencing the steadfast love of God. This is a helpful contrast for us as Christians. We live in a world where we can look around and it might appear as if unbelievers are living in apparent success and prosperity and kind of the good life is the life of ungodliness. And then we can look around and see Christians who are suffering and it might appear at a glance like, well, man, it looks like the Christian way of life is the path of suffering. Well, Psalm 36 reminds us that appearances are deceiving. It reminds us that we can be deceived into thinking that the life of security and blessing is found in uh, living indifferent to God. But Psalm 36 reminds us, no, that's not the case. The life of the wicked cannot be compared to the deep, soul-satisfying experience of knowing God and his steadfast love. So Psalm 36, we can categorize it or or organize it into two main sections. Verses 1 through 4, where David describes those who do not know God. And then verses 7 through 12, where David describes the deep, satisfying experience of those who do know God's steadfast love. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning in that second section. But in order for us to appreciate it more, we're going to start where David starts. Where David starts by talking about those that live, and he describes them, you see that in verse 36, in verse 1 of chapter 36, he describes them as the wicked. So uh, we'll start where David starts. The wicked live as if God does not matter. David sets up a contrast by giving us a general description of the wicked. He describes them in general as people who, you see that in verse 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that description of the wicked surprise you? If you were going to describe the wicked, how would you describe them? Often what we do is we describe uh, wicked by talking about those that are uh, have wicked actions, uh, those that uh, um, would have wicked behaviors in their life. But the scriptures go deeper than that. The idea and phrase of fear of God in this passage, it's deeper than just a simple fear of like spiders or snakes. Some of you might have that. We're not talking about fearing God as if you would fear spiders and snakes. The word in the Bible that talks about the fear of God is really describing a a, a capture of the soul, of the being of a person, so that you're astonished by God's magnificence. You are living in a conscious awareness of God, or maybe we could describe it this way. You live in a sense of awe-filled joy about who God is. That's describing the fear of God. So in other words, in Psalm 36, he describes the wicked as those that have no fear of God before their eyes. It's simply meaning the wicked are people who live with rebellious indifference to God. Which means that if you have no fear of God, you live as if God does not matter. Maybe that's a helpful way for us to analyze 
or assess our own hearts. Uh, we might like to think, or somebody, it's possible somebody who affirms God's existence could still not live in the fear of God. Because it's not just somebody who affirms that God exists. The demons affirm that God exists, but they do not live in fear of him as his people do, with this reverence, joy-filled awe. People that do not fear God are people that live as if God does not matter. So the scriptures teach that those that are wicked live indifferent to God. So there's a difference between admitting God exists and then living as if God matters. So what happens when someone doesn't know God? Well, that's what he is doing in uh, David in the psalm, in verses 2 and 3 and 4. He's kind of pulling on that thread. If you live with indifference to God, this is eventually what your life is going to be categorized by or what it's going to look like over time. What happens when somebody doesn't live with reverence and fear of God is that when God doesn't matter, you start living in self-flattery. You see in verse 2, you start living in self-pride. You start having self-deception. You live as if you can hide your sin and if you're not accountable to God for your sin. In verse 3, the downward progression of self-deception continues. Words and actions are corrupted because they're flowing from a same corrupt source from the heart. The inner person is darkened to the reality of God. Jesus wrote it this, uh, said it this way in Matthew 15. It says, he said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles a person. This is what David is saying here in Psalm 36, verse 3. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. And when you don't fear God, you cease to act wise in the ways that really matter. It doesn't mean that you're not smart. You might have a lot of degrees attached to the end of your name, but if you do not fear God, God's estimation of you is you are a fool because you're not living in the reality of the, of the wisdom that matters most. So the wicked are those who might have a semblance of wisdom in the world, but no true wisdom in the eyes and the mind of God. Look at verse 4. A life that's not ordered around God and his, and his uh, existence, his self-awareness, is a life that is rooted in self-centered living. Godless living is so pervasive it fills all areas of life, right? He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. And so it's like the idle times of the day, rather than being constructive for doing good to others, in advancing the mission and purposes of God, they are self-centered and full of evil and corruptness. And so you go from somebody who is in the first few verses full of self-deception to now in verse 4, full of corruption and evil. When the Apostle Paul was writing about this same idea of this pervasive fallenness of mankind, of humankind, in Romans, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9 and then down through verse 18, you can turn there later at your own time, uh, Paul is quoting from Psalm 36 when he is giving that description of the fallen state of humankind. When he says and he describes them as people who are rejecting, uh, who are rejecting the wisdom of God and they walk not in the fear of God. Our world is full of religious people. Psalm 36 is describing wickedness not as people who are irreligious, but people who live indifferent to God, as if God doesn't matter. Jesus met a lot of people that were very religious but they were indifferent to God because they were pursuing their own way of self-salvation. So maybe you're here today and you're trying to feel better about yourself and trying to go through religious activity as if that's going to take away the guilt that you feel. You want to do something better and so you're going to try to pursue kind of a better way of life and so you're going to come to church and kind of get involved in religious activity and thereby kind of reform your life. Friends, that is not meaning you're going from, from being wicked to being not wicked. Because as the psalmist describes, it really gets down into the heart, this indifference before God as if God does not matter. Using God as a means to get something that you want, well, that's not godliness. 
Religious behavior in itself is not the answer to the guilt of sin. It's not the pathway of finding God's love either. An internal change of heart is what is needed most. And that's where David is going to go to when he starts in verse 5. But before we get there, I want you to ask yourself, are you one of these wicked? Don't start assessing all of your behaviors, and it might be be worthwhile, but do you live as if God does not matter? Does God matter to you merely for two hours on a Sunday? And the rest of your life, it's largely as if God does not matter? Well, friend, that is not living in the fear of God, with a trembling joy of who He is, what He's done, and what He's made you. If you only live with that mere acknowledgement of God, you might be a religious person or even a moralistic person. But friends, when you experience the life, the steadfast love of God that David is going to describe next, it is life-changing. It reorients you from the inside out. And that's where David goes next. He gives a snapshot of the wicked, and now he's going to contrast the wicked with those who, are, with those who enjoy the steadfast love of God, which I think is such a helpful comparison for us. Again, I'm talking about how we often evaluate actions as if we can kind of uh, change ourselves from being wicked by doing lots of good actions and that's going to kind of make us a different category of a person. But that's not what the psalmist does. What David does is he doesn't say, well, here's how the wicked are living and now here's how the godly live. What he does is he says, here's how the wicked live and here's what the godly know. God's steadfast love. The righteous, God's children, are, are people who have embraced and experienced the steadfast love of God. They're not working themselves into God's love. They're not earning God's love. They're not manipulating God to give them love. They are people who, by faith, have embraced God's steadfast love through Jesus Christ. So what do we learn about God's steadfast love? And really, my aim of this sermon this morning is for Christians to kind of reignite a a heart full of, uh, of adoration for all that God has done for you and who he is for you through Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I would hope to entice you to want to know this kind of love for yourself. What is the steadfast love of God? Well, verse 5, we learn that God's steadfast love, the steadfast love of the Lord is boundless. It's boundless. You see, verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. So as we begin to develop this truth about the steadfast love of the Lord, you might be sitting here and thinking, man, this is like a classic you know, Christian sermon just about how God is love and how he loves you. And there's truth in that, yes. But the term that stands behind the word steadfast love in the English Standard Version, uh, that's one thing that the translators of the English Standard Version did over and over again. They kept the translation of that particular Hebrew word the same. So every time in your ESV, in your English Standard Version, you read the word steadfast love, that is a reminder for you as a reader that that's this particular word to describe a unique feature of God's love. This is not just that God is sentimental or that God is just kind of warm-hearted, kind of just this teddy bear you can hug and just feel comfort. But this is talking about a kind of love that is an aggressive, fierce, loyal, promise-keeping, no-matter-the-cost kind of love. This is the kind of love that is fierce and aggressive and defends and is loyal. And so when we think of God's love, when we read it in Psalm 36, when David writes about your steadfast love, O Lord, he is not writing about a Hollywood 
kind of romantic, whim, squishy kind of love. He's writing about this, this, in some ways, almost a stern, fierce, loyal love for his people. Popular songs are full of wishes for this kind of love. Or songs, if you're a country fan, songs that are talking about how you're broken, heartbroken over not having this kind of love. We kind of laugh and chuckle about that, right? I mean, how many songs in our popular day are just full of this kind of love, these ballads or these anthems of love? It's just simply one, where, one place we can look that proves to us as a, as a humankind that this is the kind of love that we all want most. It's the love that every one of us is looking for. And if, you're, if you don't know it, it's what you're looking for. You just don't know it yet. God's Sabbath love is given entirely by his free and sovereign choice, and it's why this love is so deep and so secure and awe-inspiring and unique. David has experienced it, and he can't be quiet about it. So I've probably used this illustration before, so if it sounds familiar, just pretend that it's the first time you've heard it. But this is the kind of love, right? Imagine a relationship between a husband and wife. If the wife were to ask her husband, why do you love me? And uh, spouses, I'm not telling you that you need to go home and do this. So husbands, please don't get angry at me if your wife asks you that over lunch today. But if she were to ask you, why do you love me? If, just pretend, right? Pretend, husband. If you were to say, well, of all the women that I knew at the time, you stood out from the rest. I was so impressed by your intellect. I was captivated by your beautiful smile. I just have stood, have stood in wonder of your flawless complexion. And I would I look across the room and I would be delighted by the poise and grace of your posture. Now, I know I'm speaking over the top there, right? I doubt any of you husbands speak to your wife like that, to an answer like that. What just happened there is the wife just lost all confidence in her husband's love for her. All true confidence. Because if the husband's love is anchored in some changeable feature, some changeable thing in her life, now suddenly you're at the risk of losing that love. But if the husband were to say, I love you because I choose to love you. Now at first glance you might think, well that sounds really sterile and kind of boring. I mean, aren't you, don't you, don't I look beautiful? Don't you, okay, but just set all that set aside. But if it's just because I have chosen to love you and I will keep choosing to love you forever. Okay, now you're like, all right, now that's the kind of love of one of those great movies or a great story or a great song, right? That kind of love. Friends, that is the love of God. It is not a squishy, sentimental love. It is not anchored in any feature or action that we have done. But when David is writing about God's steadfast love being boundless, it's because it was God's free, sovereign choice to set his affections on us as sinners and to redeem us by the shed blood of Christ. So this is the kind of love that gives us comfort and security. This is why David describes it as boundless, right? Your, your, your love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 15. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. In 1 John uh, chapter 4, the apostle is recording what he, what he heard. He says, we love him because he first loved us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But here's what God did. He set a whole new category. But God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So when there was nothing that would have been enticing to God to choose to love us in ourselves, God 
set his affections on us. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. This is boundless, right? It extends to the heavens. I mean, have you ever tried to look to the ends of the universe? People are trying to do that, right? Big telescopes, they put them in space to get closer to space, right? But they just have a lens that looks as far as they can into space and they try to make a new lens that'll start where that lens left off and look further. It's boundless. You, you can't control the clouds, right? I mean, how, how fruitless it would be to try to put fences in the sky to keep the clouds from blowing where they do. It's boundless, which means that when David is talking about the boundless love of the Lord, he's writing that there is no limit or extent to the supply or reach of God's love. Now, I know nothing, none of this is necessarily new for us. These are, these are familiar themes for us as God's people. But would you pause and let this sink in freshly? Perhaps your understanding or your memory of God's love has been skewed by experiences in your past or by experiences in your present about how others have treated you in what they called love. And you've begun to press onto those uh, press onto your relationship with God this, these, these worldly ideas or these conventional ideas. The Bible is unconventional when it talks about God's love. This kind of love is what changes you from the inside out. It radically reorients your priorities. But David goes on in verse 6 and he talks about God's righteousness and God's judgments. Now, when you read this originally, it might seem like David is just kind of listing attributes of God randomly. I don't believe that's what's happening. I believe the primary feature of Psalm 36 is God's steadfast love. And we know that because he repeats himself in verse 5, again in verse 7, again in verse 10. So what he's doing now in verse, in verse 6 when he writes about God's uh, faithfulness, God's righteousness, God's judgments, I believe what he's doing is he's trying to help us understand the boundless nature of the love of God, of the steadfast love of God. So I think we can understand it this way, that God's steadfast love He is righteous and he is just and faithful in his love, which means that in his love, he will always do what is right. He is righteous. And in his love, he always makes right decisions. His decisions are deep and right, which, by the way, love in a human plane kind of makes us stupid, doesn't it? You know, have you ever done, guys, have you ever done something stupid because, right, when you were maybe dating or... Um, you don't, right? You're in love and you do something stupid because you're in love. You're not thinking straight. God does not become stupid because he loves. His steadfast love is fierce and aggressive and loyal, right? It protects, but it's also full of faithfulness and righteousness and justice. So he's always going to make the right decisions. He's always going to make the right choices. They're always going to be deep and settled in his character and nature. And so this means that we don't have a God who is just full of love and kind of sentimental, but he's... You know, he's well-intentioned, but sadly misguided and kind of smothering us and making poor decisions and, 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 not, and not making right choices for us that, that actually hinder and hurt us. That never happens with God's love. This is not God. Look at verse 6. Man and beast you save, O Lord. Again, it's boundless. God's love is boundless. It affects all of his creation, provides and protects and so what David, I think, wants us to know here in verses 5 and 6 is the transcendence of God in his steadfast love. And we're talking about it reaches to the heavens, it reaches to the skies, you can't put boundaries on it. None of us have a love like that on our own. But this is the love that God pours out to his people. God's transcendence means he's not common or ordinary. He's not, he's not simple or, or, or ordinary like we are. He is, 
He's a complete otherness. He's set apart in his character and nature. He is transcendent. The prophet Isaiah records it this way in Isaiah 40. It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That's a description of the transcendence of God. So the love that we look at in Psalm 36 is is a love of a transcendent God. This reassures God's people because it knows we know then that God's love is over all things, over every area of our life. There's no one aspect or area of our life where God's love cannot reach. It's boundless. But you may be wondering if the boundless love of the transcendent God matters for the specific circumstances in your life. You say, Sean, I appreciate you talking about this great big idea about God's love, but you don't know the brokenness and the pain and the heartbreak that I'm presently experiencing right now. And it's hard for me to sit here and listen to you talk about a God of boundless love when I'm going through horrible circumstances. Well, that's where I think David turns next with that phrase at the end of verse 6 when he says, Man and beast you save, O Lord, because that leads him right into verse 7 when he says this, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. The word precious If you've read Tolkien's books or watched his movies, you probably are smiling to yourself about hearing the word precious, as if some deranged creature has its precious, right? The ring, the rule them all. It's not that God's, well, maybe you could say this, God's love, steadfast love, is a love to rule them all. And when you experience it, you want nothing other than it. This is David's experience, but I think what he's turning turning to here, he's turning from the transcendence of God's love in verses 5 and 6, to now the preciousness, the personal, the intimate, the close aspects of God's love. You see verse 7? How precious is your steadfast love, O God? The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So I think what verse 5 and 6 were doing was like taking a telescope and letting us see large, majestic realities of who God is and bringing them closer to us And now verses 7 and following are going to be like a microscope, letting us peer in real close to these fine, detailed features of God's love in our life. The word picture that David uses in verse 7 is that of a hatchling, right? Taking shelter under the wings of its mother. When he says that he, he, he hides, take refuge under the shadow of your wings. It demonstrates a care and a tenderness to protect someone vulnerable, someone fragile, someone not able to handle life on its own. This really points us to Christ. If you think of really the heart of the Christian message, it's the good news of what God has given us and done for us through Jesus Christ. We're sinners. We deserve condemnation for the treasonous acts that we've done against God, but we can take refuge. We have been given a refuge in Christ. And so using the the metaphor of Psalm 36 with David, right? You, You give refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's what Jesus did for us. We hide under the shadow of his wings. He took the storm of God's wrath, our condemnation. And we are under the shadow of his wings, protected through his life, death, and resurrection. This is the steadfast love of God that we know as New Testament Christians in the person and work of Christ. But the reality is is that you will never know the precious nature of God's steadfast love like that if you will not take refuge in Jesus. See, God's love is just a theory if you refuse Christ. 
Because God's refuge to you in his love is given to you in the person of Christ. Verse 8 expands on the precious nature of God's love. He says, They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Again, this poetic language is just so full of these word pictures. They're meant to kind of capture us and, and, and lift us up into these glorious realities. He's describing God as someone who is lavishly generous. The steadfast love of the Lord is not awesome, but he's stingy with it. God is steadfast in his love and he's generous with it. They feast on the abundance of your house. I mean, imagine if, and maybe some of you have this happening, right? All the neighborhood kids just come into your house and just raid your fridge and all your cupboards. And they do it over and over and over again. And you just keep buying food and stocking the cupboard, stocking the fridge, just keep doing it. That's like God. You cannot, you, you can't like make him bankrupt in love. He's abundant. He's lavish with his generosity and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Really, this second word picture, this river of delight is a, is a kind of a the, theological truth that's pulled through the whole scriptures. It begins all the way back in Genesis with the Garden of Eden. Those words are the same. When it talks about the delights and the river that was in Eden, those are the same words that David is using now here in Psalm 36 to describe what it is to know God and his steadfast love. This recurring theme throughout all of Scripture is that God proves himself over and over again to his people that he is this river of delight. He is this river of delight. I mean, the Old Testament wilderness wanderings, right? They they need water. They're arguing against God. You don't care for us. And God gives them water from the rock in the wilderness. Over and over again, God describes himself as the one, the all-satisfying one. In Revelation chapter 22, Right, we have the beginning of the scriptures, beginning with this Eden experience, this perfect place with this river running through it, nourishing the, the plants. And then the end in Revelation 22, we have another description of this, of this heavenly existence where we have this river of the water of life. It's bright as crystal. This is Revelation 22. This river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God describes himself over and over again like that. David is using those descriptions to describe the steadfast love of God like that in a personal, close way. But sadly, what do God's people regularly do? And this includes us. We sadly doubt that God is the all-satisfying one. Instead, what Jeremiah wrote is too often the description of us. And he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. This is God speaking to the prophet. That they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Friends, Psalm 36 is inviting you back to be reminded that the steadfast love of God is the all-satisfying true river of delight. It's not your career accomplishment. It's not your relationship with some other human being. It's not your fathering or your mothering. It is not you fill in the blank of anything that you can manufacture or do. And that is what is so devastating about life in the sin-cursed world. Everything, even the great things, just always eventually what? They fall short and disappoint. Psalm 36 reminds us that God is not in that. His love is transcendent and boundless. And His love is precious and personal. Again, the imagery of Psalm 36 points us to Christ when it talks about how he's this river of delight. 
uh, when Jesus was talking to a woman who was asking him questions at the well and he was talking to her about himself and using this word picture of this, hey, I'm the one that can give you water that's going to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. You'll never be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I'm going to give in John 4, he says, you'll never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or the beginning of John, when John describes Jesus as the light of God that has come. That God has came full of grace and truth. And the light shone in the darkness. Who is that talking about? It's talking about Christ. That's who David's talking about in Psalm 36. When he says here, in your light do we see light, in verse 9. There's a deep longing in our soul for something more, something that will satisfy. Where everything else in this world always eventually seems to disappoint. What we need is more health or wealth or a change of circumstances. Ultimately, what we need ultimately is the all-satisfying drink of the river of God's delight and that's found in his steadfast love. Well, verse 10 through 12, David finishes with this prayer. Here we learn that God's steadfast love is continual. Not only is it boundless, not only is it precious, but it's continual. This is a good thing, friends. It's not like God just kind of works up some sort of, you know, he digs deep and he gives us this expression of love. It was kind of just a one-off expression of love. Done. But God's love is continual. Verse 10, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. I think verse 10 really is the key verse of Psalm 36 because it's attaching the steadfast love of God with how you experience God's love by knowing him. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Because God's steadfast love is boundless and because it's precious, David wants God's steadfast love in his life all the time. It's like the prophet Jeremiah when he wrote, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. This is God's word to his people. In verse 10, He's connecting the love that God gives to knowing him. Generally, people like to talk about God's love. In fact, up to this point, maybe if you, even if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning and you're hearing talk about God's love, maybe you're not objecting at all because it just sounds good to you. It sounds like, yeah, that just seems like a God-like thing to do. Love people like that. But I hope that you understand that we like to talk about God's love as unconditional and it's true in that aspect of you can't earn it, you can't merit it, you can't... Get yourself to be deserving of it. Yes, in that way it's unconditional. But there is a condition of God's love. And he writes about it in verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those, what? Who know you. All through the scriptures. The condition of receiving the steadfast love of God like this is receiving Jesus. Embracing Christ. Abandoning all efforts of self-salvation or a life ordered around your own priorities in defiance of God as if he doesn't matter and embracing the life and death of Christ as the only way to bring you back into right relationship with God, to forgive you of your sins, to rescue you from the condemnation you deserve for those sins and to replace your love affair with sin with a love affair with God with a steadfast love like this. That's the condition. In fact, really the most well-known verse of the entire Bible, John 3.16. Right? You'd see it everywhere. I was going to say you, you see it at sporting events, but people aren't at sporting events now, right? Sorry for the never reminder of that. But John 3.16, for God so what? He loved the world, right? 
Our, our just general world loves to hear that kind of idea. That God loves the world. What did that love look like? He gave his only son. What's the condition then? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What David is writing about in Psalm 36, we as New Testament Christians know he's writing about Jesus. Jesus' love is boundless. Jesus' love is precious. And if you doubt that, I want you to remember the cross where he died for your sin. This is not just a theoretical, kind of out there kind of love, just a general ooey-gooey feeling to make you, you know, kind of get through tough times in life. But it was a real, fierce, loyal love. He died with words like this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He died with words like this, Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken, right? Because so we could take refuge under his wings, Psalm 36. But David yearns to continually experience God's love. And that's why in verse 11, he asked that God would deliver him from anything that would keep him from knowing the love of God. Arrogance or the hand of the wicked driving him away so that he would be unwise and unable to discern God's love. So whatever your experience in life right now is, I'm not saying that you have this wonderful life just because of God's love as if all circumstances are just hunky-dory, so to speak, in your life. But Psalm 36 is asking you to think bigger than just the present circumstances of this life. And Christians, not to diminish the incredible reality that God has set his affections on us. That he has given us his steadfast love that is boundless, that is uncontainable, it is precious, and it is continual. That's the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's why in verse 12 he says this, There the evildoers lie fallen, they are thrust down, unable to rise. You ever read Psalms and it's, you know, there's these great passages about God's love and that it ends like, well, what? What are we supposed to do with that? I mean, it just sounds so dreadful and so dark and gloomy. They are the evildoers fall and they thrust down, unable to rise. It simply means this, that God's love is going to win the decisive victory. And that's a good thing. God has come so that he could, what? Defeat the works of the devil. And David is comforting his heart as a man who's living in a sin-cursed world, feeling the effects of, of a sin-cursed world all around him. What does he do? He finds comfort in knowing this, that it is God's love that will win the decisive victory. In fact, when you look at the cross, it didn't look like it, did it? I mean, it looked like God lost. Jesus, God's son, is being executed by Roman by Roman centurions. It looked like a failure, but in what we, what appears to our eyes as a failure, God was winning the decisive victory and he did it through his steadfast love when Jesus gave himself for sinners. And so, whatever your perspective is today on the love of God, maybe it's, maybe your heart is feeling weary and you feel like, is, it, is God's love even working? Friend, it is. No matter what you are feeling or what your perceptions are, let Psalm 36 reorient you to what is actually happening in life. This is the kind of love you have been given. I'm going to ask the music team to come. As they are coming, I'd like to just ask a couple of questions to two different categories here. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you have heard ideas about the love of God and it's been kind of interesting and neat, but it really hasn't mattered to you. You really don't understand how it could change you. I I hope... Maybe you're interested in learning about God's love more. God's love is what you are longing for most. 
And if you would have interest in understanding God's love more, we would be happy to talk with you more about this. We would invite you to keep coming to hear the God's Word taught so that you can experience what David has written about here and what we as God's people have been singing about all morning. And if you're a Christian, I hope that some feature of God's steadfast love will encourage you. Maybe over lunch today you can talk with one another about what feature of God's love is encouraging you most. But whatever the case is, I hope that you will take comfort and take, find strength in knowing that God's love will not... You, you cannot get out of reach of God's love. You cannot exhaust it. And friend, when you begin to doubt it, remember the ultimate expression of God's love to you. Jesus Christ. And it's under his wings that you take refuge. Let's pray.